Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zaffert. Yesterday, I found myself at, in Cape Town at Cafe Ritava, which is attached to the South African Jewish Museum. To my delight, I discovered that the permanent exhibition at the museum is a collection of Isaac Kaplan's Netsuke, which are, of course, miniature sculptures that were worn in the 17th century in Japan. As I am a lover of Japanese art and culture, I asked the director of the museum, Gavin Morris, to tell me the history of the collection and the artworks itself. Um, Gavin, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Sharif, and hi to all your listeners. Gavin, what exactly is Netsuke? Um, I think the quickest way to describe Netsuke would be uh, miniature Japanese art from the 16th century. 17th to 18th century, um, that was actually functional art. Um, its real use is uh, was a form of artistic expression for uh, items such as um, what we would call today a wallet, but back in back in that time in Japan, uh, a type of uh, hanging bag or or, uh, or yeah, like a, a, a little yeah, a little wooden or or uh, ivory or carved. Uh, bag that you'd hang off your belt. Yes. Um, so, Netsky, if you can put yourself into sort of 16th, 17th, 18th century Japan, uh, Japanese uh, fashion was out of kimonos, which had a very broad belt. Uh, it did not have any pockets. So, um, Netsky um, became a sort of functional form of jewellery. Uh, what it would be, it would have a, a little, um, a little wooden uh, box or, or container of some sort that would hang off a string and that would be then put underneath a, a kimono belt and then a toggle would hang above the belt to stop it flipping out, or slipping out from underneath the, the belt. Um, and that's really what, what Netsuki are. Um, today they're appreciated for their, um, their artistry, their, the sculpture, the, the amount of of um, artistry and and attention to detail that Japanese carvers from you know hundreds of years ago put into the work. Uh, uh, obviously, they're not used as as wallets or, or boxes anymore. And true to Japanese culture, uh, part of its rich folklore and religion found themselves into these little netsuki. Yes, I mean, like uh, in all civilizations, um, you know, sculpture and art reflects the um, the mythologies of those of those cultures. Um, so many of our uh, many of our Netskis in our collection, for example, in Wuhan, reflect uh, Japanese mythology. There's some Chinese influence as well, but also a large part of the natural world as well: uh, animals, fish, etc. And they also are made of very different kinds of materials. Yeah, um, many early on were made from the wood. Uh, boxwood is a, uh, is a popular wood used in Japan. Um, but they also found themselves uh, influenced by um, European culture. Um, Japan was a closed society for 250 years, uh, but and only two nations were really allowed to trade with them, that being the Dutch and the Chinese, who were only allowed to land in, a, in an island of Nagasaki's uh, harbor. But the, Jack, uh, the Dutch found a ready market for ivory. So they used to provide ivory, which would quickly make its way to these um, uh, artist schools or, or um, workshops where, where these artists would make, would 
turn the ivory into genetically, but they use ivory, uh, bone, uh, wood. Um, those are the, the most sort of popular uh, sources of material used to make Netsky. And is Netsky still made today? It is, but, but it, none of the none of contemporary makes of Netsky have ever matched the master's mastery of, of the early uh, schools. No. And, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, carry on. Um, so you know, there were there were schools of uh, artist schools and and renowned Japanese uh, sculptors that were known for their, for their particular work. Although um, unusually, or at least surprisingly, none of the artists actually signed their work. Hmm. Uh, although today, um, specialists can actually go and look at the materials and, and those carvings and actually identify it as a particular carving or sculptural school and the master of that particular school. Uh, it's very much in similar or along similar lines around. Uh, Japanese uh, acceptance or, or at least um, way of dealing with things like uh, like the samurai, for example, is, uh, is um, there are very rich traditions and uh, these various schools would follow their different traditions, particularly set by their masters. Gavin, how did one of the largest collections of Nitsuki happen to find its way into the South African Jewish Museum? Um, it's a very unusual story. In fact, it's a lovely story. Um, Isaac Kaplan uh, collected the, built up the collection. Isaac Kaplan uh, was the patriarch of the Kaplan family. He was the father to Mendel and Robert Kaplan. And uh, he, um, he he came across them from his brother in, through his brother-in-law's brother-in-brother. Um, he was, his brother-in-law was a governor of Sully Kushnik. And Solly's brother, Louis, had been in Japan in the 1930s. And when he returned to South Africa, he bought a small collection along with him. And um, Isaac saw these and, and uh, really fell in love with them as an art form. And uh, he began to collect. And um, he, was, he was a very um, obsessive, focused character to the point where he actually taught himself to read and write the, the Japanese of the era in order to collect. And uh, as, um, as, as he was such a serious collector, as he went on through his life, he collected from uh, auction houses in the UK and, and elsewhere. He bought the, the real impetus for that collection was when he and uh, another person here in our community, um, back in the day, Toddy Schreier, bought the Gregory Bunzer collection of Netsky, and the two of them divided it between themselves, and that really created this impetus for the collection. And what is the response by your visitors to the collection? Is there a great interest? Um, you may recall uh, a few years back, a book entitled The Hair with Amber Eyes yes. uh, by Edmund Ball was, was brought out. And that really um, became a bestseller, it's about a million copies sold, it's been translated in non, lots of different languages, and that really uh, caught the imagination and, and introduced Netsky to a much broader public. Up until that point, it was a, a much smaller group of collectors who, who valued it and understood the, the nature and the value of the, of the subject. But after that, it became much more popular, uh, more known in, in popular culture, and um, as a result, we see many, many people coming to the Jewish Museum specifically to see this collection. Uh, our collection here, we have about a third of the collection on show permanently, which is about 260-odd pieces. And um, the rest are obviously locked away and kept safe. But, but the, the real jewels of the collection are on display. 
Um, and it, it's quite something to see. We see people um, coming specifically to see the collection, and quite cleverly, and I can't take credit for this, but uh, my predecessor at the museum decided to position the, the collection right at the end of the museum. <laughs> so, <laughs> so despite themselves, as you know, you can learn a little bit about Japanese art and sculpture, uh, find themselves learning about our, our Jewish heritage and that community's history here in South Africa at the same time. So it's a win-win. When I drove past the kind of the museum and I saw, oh, they've got this art collection, I was very surprised initially. And I was, I was, as I said, delighted, but also very surprised because it wasn't the kind of thing that I imagined with your collections uh, and with your art, ex- with your exhibitions generally. And in fact, you have a new exhibition at the museum, which is kind of more in line with the South African Jewish community's history, or certainly German Jewish history. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Okay. Well, at the moment, we have an exhibition um, that came from the uh, Lithuanian embassy. Um, it's photographed by a Lithuanian photographer who was fascinated with the remnants of the Jewish community in Lithuania. I mean, obviously, we're all lit books, um, or the majority of us are lit books, and uh, as a result of the Holocaust, there's the Jewish community in, in Lithuania was, was essentially wiped out. Um, but then many remnants of our forebears passed there, uh, of synagogues, uh, buildings, Yiddish signs, etc. And this photographer went and captured this. Um, these photographs, and then we have them on display at, at the moment. They were previously on display at the Chinesburg Holocaust Center, uh, and have traveled around the world. Um, this is their final destination, and they'll be on display until the beginning of August. Then, uh, in on the 9th of August, we open a fascinating exhibition on the been developing in-house um, with regards to Joburg family, um, the Schwab family in Johannesburg. Uh, Rudolf Schwab um, was a German. Uh, refugee. He left, uh, he left Hanau in Germany in the 1930s and eventually made his way to South Africa. And he was quite fastidious and he, uh, every Sunday would sit down and write letters to his family back in Germany prior to the war and then to his surviving relatives wherever they happened to be in the world after the war. Um, what is quite unique is that he kept all these letters. He kept not only the correspondence that he received, but also the letters that he sent. He made carbon copies of them. So, when these letters are discovered by by Rudolph's uh, grandchildren, there were over 4,000 pages of letters. And it creates a, a beautiful picture of uh, not only what it was like for refugees finding, uh, finding a safe haven here in South Africa, but also the impact they had, uh, they had as bystanders while their families were wiped up in, in the Holocaust, but also uniquely um, what the families went through thereafter correspondence that he had with his surviving relatives that was that were uh, spread all over the world essentially and how they reminisced through their through their correspondence each having to live a new reality a new life that uh, the the memories of their past kept alive in this closed chain of, of letters that they sent to each other uh, it's going to, it's looking like it's going to be a riveting and very interesting exhibition Gavin, I'm constantly amazed at kind of the new sources that are co- coming out, um, the, like these little treasure troves of 4,000 letters that give us new insight. Do you think more and more are still going to come? Is there an endless resource out there? No, it's obviously not endless. Um, what, what I think is, is happening now is 
Um, and this is just my opinion. I think post the Second World War, post the Holocaust, many survivors did not want to talk about what they had lost at their time. That's much too painful. And focused on getting on with life. And I think many people who are children of Holocaust survivors will be with me and say that their parents never ever spoke about it. And now, um, 70 years later, um, there is the need to try and uh, capture these stories. Or people uh, whose parents were Holocaust survivors are focusing more determinedly on, on their parents' stories because uh, they want to be able to pass it on to future generations. So I think we're probably seeing a, a peak in the um, discovery of new materials. Obviously, you know, there's still lots of stuff in archives um, that haven't been untouched by historians yet, but I'm talking in terms of family or social histories. I think this is where we'll see a, a peak while there is still living memory. And Gavin, you as the director of the museum and the curator of the upcoming exhibition, does it fall on you to decide how to kind of visually describe and enthrall people in what are essentially are written words and 4,000 pages of them? Uh, well, um, luckily I work with a, with a fantastic team. Um, firstly, um, all the hard work with regards to the letters was done by a historian by the name of Shirley Gilbert, who's from Johannesburg originally, but is now at Southampton University. She uh, she worked with the Schwab family, uh, had many of the letters translated because, of course, they were in the original German. <laughs> and she's written a wonderful book talking about them called From Things Lost, a book about letters and the legacy of the Holocaust. <laughs> um, the book forms the basis of the exhibition. Uh, Shirley herself is working very much... Uh, uh, very hard and very closely with us in terms of the text and uh, communicating the story via not only the background of the letters and the people who are in them, but also making use of the letters themselves. And then I'm lucky enough also to have a strong designers who work with us who um, find a way to to bring something that is essentially two-dimensional, a, a story that is back to life. So we have the uh, exhibition will include the specially made films, some uh, footage we, we've uh, discovered sitting in the back of a cupboard <laughs> in Hanau that has never been seen at Nazi-era Hanau in Germany, and um, as well as some family photographs from the Shards from that era and, and, other, and other sources. It should be a very beautiful exhibition. It sounds absolutely amazing. Are you bringing it down to Joburg? We have to. I think that's a plan. We have to get it uh, up to Joburg uh, once it's finished its run over here. But um, really, uh, I'd rather people come to see it at the museum. <laughs> Uh, Gavin and it is a very beautiful museum and it is a lovely centre and you do have the lovely cafe Richard very close by and you're alongside the Holocaust Museums so there is a lot to be said for going down to Cape Town but hopefully those who are not going to make it can see it here Um, Gavin my last question to you is how do you come up with themes for exhibitions? You know what coming up with exhibitions is not the typical part it's choosing between the wealth of material and stories that that we have available that that um, that we have to choose from. There's really there's no shortage of, of exhibition ideas that we have. There's so many that we'd love to do. Our communities have such a rich history and past, and uh, even a vibrancy, particularly vibrancy in our art and things that uh, Jews in South Africa are doing today. It's very difficult to to distill something and come up with a particular idea. Um, in reality, you know. 
things come down to what we're able to afford and what we're able to achieve with, with the budget that we have. And uh, and that's ultimately how we how we get to, to what we decide to choose. Um, but really, there is there, there are so many stories out there, so many things that are worthy of being exhibitions. I just wish I, we could do them all. Hmm. I'm absolutely fascinated. Well, good luck to to you in in doing all those jobs that you need to do, all those exhibitions that need to be go up and uh, inform and celebrate our Jewish heritage and culture. Gavin, thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you back here in Joburg, actually, with your latest uh, exhibition. Well, I, I, I have to be there soon, and I have to uh, bring this new exhibition up there too. Great. So uh, you'll be the first to know when it happens. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. That was Gavin Morris, the director of the SA Jewish Museum.